Hey, my name is Amanda. I want to thank you for joining us today. We hope that this message inspires you, builds your faith, and helps you find your next step toward Jesus. Enjoy the message. Our scripture reading today uh, comes to us out of the Gospel of Luke. It's in chapter 15 and begins in verse 11. Um, if you've been going to church for a while, it's a passage we all know. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So we divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. This is the word of God for us today. Good morning. Uh, good to be with you in worship today. It's fair week in Southeast Missouri. You excited? Oh boy, that's not a lot of energy right there. I know. I have a love-hate relationship with the fair myself. Like to get a good corn dog now and then, you know, but when my kids were young, that was a lot of money to spend at the fair, you know. You already been to vacation. It's like, yeah, so anyway. I grew up in the city. We didn't have fair in the county fair or South District Fair, but uh, we did have baseball. 
And um, uh, when I was a kid, when I was a young teenager, I uh, had my, my favorite player at the time was Joe Torrey. Long before he managed the evil empire, he was a good guy. Uh, he, he played for the Cardinals. And like a lot of kids, my age, a lot of boys my age, I tried to mimic his batting stance. And I'd get a bat and I'd, I'd watch how he held the bat and how he swung. You know, he kind of had an upright stance. And uh, I got to where I, I could put on a pretty good Joe Torrey impression. I did not have the same results, but I could, I could look like him, you know? Uh, and, and so that's, maybe you did the same thing with different ball players or whatever when you were young. Well, in my office is a very small replica of the great Rembrandt painting called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And maybe you've heard me talk about this a couple of times. I had the privilege of being able to see the original at the uh, Hermitage in St. Petersburg, Russia. Uh, and it's an it's a astounding picture and I have it on my wall in my office for a couple reasons. First, I mean, several reasons. Not just because I love the story that Jesus tells, the parable, or because I love the Rembrandt painting. Both of those are true. The reason I have that in my office is that it's there as a reminder. And, um, and that is that when I look at that painting, in my heart, I often breathe a prayer, Lord, make me like the Father in the story. This is the moment of the story where the wayward son has come home, tattered and torn, hair shaved because of lies, shoes falling off of his feet, wasting his life. He comes back, but the father graciously receives him with kindness, mercy, and forgiveness. And I see that painting and I say, Lord, make me like that father. Today, we continue our series called Something's Missing. We're talking about relationships. And um, I don't believe it's possible to do a series, or probably not very responsible, to do a series on relationships and not deal with the subject of broken relationships. Um, here, it's a story of family brokenness. And in this story, the father puts on a clinic on how to respond when wounded deeply by a family member. I suspect there are a number of you here today who have been wounded deeply by a family member, and let's be honest, some of you have wounded others deeply. Maybe it's a friend, a neighbor, a coworker. Whatever the case, we all know what it is to experience broken relationships. And what I want to do in this story is I want to look at uh, the parable that Jesus tells, which really is in three different scenes, three different acts. And in each one of them, we're going to get a different perspective and learn something new about how to go about repairing broken relationships. And what I want you to hear is that there's hope. There's hope and there's a way forward for ruptured relationships. So let's uh, jump into this story. And the first point of the first act, the first part of this story is we see is that, uh, and what I want us to hear is that rupture, brokenness in relationships is normal. It's normal. If Jesus, the son of God living in our midst, the sinless son of God, had one deny him, one betray him, and all of his friends scatter at his greatest hour of need, we are all going to experience ruptured and broken relationships. Where there is trust, there will be broken trust. Where there is loyalty, there will be betrayal. 
It just goes with the territory. We're human beings. And when relationships are happening, there's gonna be good things and wonderful things that come from that. And there's gonna be heartache and there's gonna be brokenness. It's just part and parcel of what it means to live in this world. Uh, A few weeks ago, a friend of mine sent an article to me by a Presbyterian pastor I'd not heard of before uh, on the subject of pastors and friends. But the opening paragraph really uh, got my attention. And this uh, writer, Walter Henniger, wrote, before I became a pastor, I uh, I could not say I was estranged from a single soul. Almost 20 years in, the list is longer than I would have ever thought bearable. It includes some of my most intimate former friends and ministry partners, people whose names are etched on major milestones in life and I on theirs. People whose secrets I still carry and they mine. Some have betrayed me. Some would say I betrayed them. All those plus hundreds of beloved people who for different reasons have left my church, which means functionally they've left my life and I have a scarred life heartscape. And I read that and I thought, my goodness, I could write every single word and that paragraph be true of me. And I bet a number of you could too. You live long enough, you're gonna experience brokenness and relationships that, that go south. It just are. And that's what happens in this story that Jesus tells. It's a story of a father with two sons and Jesus immediately tells us about the brokenness when it says here in verse 12, the younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. Here, we're introduced right away to this gaping wound, this awful thing that happens. Now, for anybody today who is a parent, if you've ever had a wayward child, or you've ever had a son or a daughter say things that were deeply wounding or do things that hurt you, you can relate to the father in this story. The the son, the younger one, Uh, by the customs of that day would have been entitled to one-third of the estate because the older son in those days always got two-thirds. Now, if there were 20 kids, the older son got two-thirds to ensure that the family farm business would go on and everybody else split up the one-third. Well, in this case, there's only two, so he gets one-third. And uh, just like it is today, it was then, the inheritance comes when your parents die. It is just a little rude to go and ask for your inheritance now. And in essence, that's what the younger son does. And he then takes the inheritance and leaves without a trace. He's out of his father's life. A lot of wounding there, friends. A lot of hurt. And in essence, really what he's saying to his dad is, I want my money now. I wish you were dead because I want the inheritance today. Now, honestly, in Middle Eastern culture, this was such such a disgraceful thing to do, such a a shameful thing to do for a son that in, in most situations, the father would have erupted with anger and driven his son from the house. But not this father. Shockingly, says he divides his property. The word there, interesting, 
is the word we get the word biology from. Bios, he divides his life. Because then your farm, your, your land was your life. He divides it and lets him go. Why? Maybe this wise father knew that love only possesses what it releases. He could have ordered the older brother, lock him up, put him in his room till he gets, you know, starts thinking straight again. Don't do that. Don't try to hold on to him. Doesn't lay a guilt trip on him. Shockingly, he gives him what he wants. And he goes, presumably forever out of his life. Talk about a wound. Talk about a family um, broken. There you go. Rupture is normal. But as we see, repair is possible. And there's this beautiful reunion that takes place. And what I want to do is look at this part of the story, and I want to look at three critical elements that are necessary for reconciliation, for for repair for ruptured relationships. These three things are really necessary, all right? First is that you need someone to initiate um, healing, someone to take the first step. And the father does this. Now, um, back up. Luke chapter 15 is a unique chapter in the gospels because it has three parables that all have the same theme. Something valuable gets lost, an all-out search is made, and then a great celebration is had once the lost thing is found. Uh, there's the lost coin. A woman loses a coin. She turns her house upside down till she finds it, and then they have a party to celebrate. Uh, a shepherd loses a sheep. He goes looking for it until he finds it, puts it on his shoulders, comes back, and they have a great party. This is the story of the lost son. Now, here the father doesn't go looking because culturally... The expectation was the elder brother was responsible. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. It was his responsibility. Everybody listening to Jesus would have known that, and they would have been saying, Where's, why isn't the older brother looking for his brother, his younger brother? But the father, even with his oldest son being neglectful of his duty, is looking. Because what? He sees his son coming from a distance. And he runs to meet him and to, to greet him. Um, because what happened um, was uh, um, that, that the son hit, hit the skids and he decides to come home. But the father initiates. And then the second part of the story, it's the father who goes to the older son who is angry angry that his father has celebrated this young guy coming back and being uh, thrown a party. And he's outside. He won't come into the party, which all of the guests would have been murmuring. Oh, what's going on here? This isn't good. Why isn't the older son coming into the party? It would have been a disgraceful thing. So the father, what does he do? He goes outside the house and pleads with his son to come in. So the father is taking the initiative. So first, for, there to be rupture, for a ruptured relationship to be repaired, there has to be someone taking that first step, swallowing their pride and going. Secondly, repentance and confession are necessary. You gotta confront the wound and name the offense. That's what happens. Uh, verse 17. Well, first, um, the, the younger son, he goes, he spends his money wildly, 
wastes his money. He runs out of money. He doesn't even have enough to buy food. He's starving. He, he wants to eat the food that the pigs are eating. He's so hungry. Nobody, nobody gives him anything. So he has a change of heart. You know, I found, I've observed, and others much wiser than me have pointed out, oftentimes what, causes, what softens a person's heart, what changes a person's heart, is that they, they experience deep adversity. And they have um, heartache and, and uh, some kind of disaster comes into their life. And that's what wakes up the son. It says he comes to his senses. Why? Because he's starving. And he realizes, man, you know why I'm in this condition? Because I really, I blew it. I hurt my father badly. I disgraced my family. And he, he feels remorse for it. Um, and so we read in verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So because he's starving, because, you know, He's hit the bottom, rock bottom. His heart softens. And he, in essence, repents. Repents, repent is a good, you know, biblical, theological word. We don't use a lot in the world. It just, it really literally means change your mind. For a long time now, months, maybe years, his back is, he's had his back to his father. He turns around and he starts walking home. That's repentance. He's gonna go home. And then when he gets home, he's, he's written the speech out and he's gonna say these words to his father. He goes, I sinned against heaven and earth. I sinned against you. He's gonna confess. Notice there's no blame. There's no excuse making. He just says, I have sinned against heaven and earth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So it goes back and he makes confession. Now, confession is at the heart of our faith. It's essential. First, I want to point out, confession is not for the sake of the one hearing it. Although it is an essential element that can bring healing, confession is for the sake of the one who sinned. They need to name it, and they need to say, I was wrong. What I did, what I said was wrong, and there's no excuse for it. Period. Done. Confession is good for the soul. It's what you're, you're saying, here's where I lost my mind. Here's what I did wrong. It's naming the truth. It's speaking the truth. Now, as I said, there, there's no blaming. There's no rationalizing. There's no justifying. He just says, Father, I sinned against heaven and against earth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Um, and there's something about that that is disarming. In most situations, when you go to a person and say, I wronged you, it, it drops people's defenses. Now, some relationships can be so toxic, so broken, that it may take a lot more than that. It may take some time. But in most cases, a person will receive that. However, if you, if you add into that some you know, excuses, 
some justification, some accusation, not going to go well. A very broken relationship in my world. And a number of years ago, this friend sent me an apology letter. In the first paragraph, they said they were wrong. And then it was two pages, and the rest of it was recriminations and accusations and everything I did wrong. <laughs> How do you think I received that? Well, let's just say the relationship's still not repaired. There's something about that that just takes the wind out of the sails of an apology. An apology is, I was wrong, period, stop, right there. That's it. And, and there's something healing in that. Confess means to agree with. When I confess, I'm agreeing with reality that what I did was wrong. To confess to God is to say, I agree with you, God, that behavior, that action, that word, that thoughtless thing over there was sin. David, when he wrote his great psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, after his affair with Bathsheba and murdering her husband Uriah, he said, you desire truth in the inmost places. Speak the truth. That's confession to agree with. Now, so that has to happen. And then the third element. So the first is someone has to initiate it. Then the the person who did the wrong has to confess it. And then thirdly, the confession has to be received and embraced. And shame has to be out of the picture. Now, the the father here puts on a clinic on how to receive a confession. So, So we go back and in verse 20, it says, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. I say, Men in that day um, did not run in public. It was considered undignified. He runs. He throws his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, goes on. Notice the father interrupts his speech. The son has repented. He's come home. That is something to celebrate. And he says, I was wrong. What I did was wrong. I sinned against you. That's all necessary. And then it's like grace and mercy and goodness just flood the scene and a party breaks out. But notice the father interrupts his speech. He doesn't let him say the last word. Make me like one of your hired servants. Why? Well, because that's groveling. If, and God's not into groveling. If, if this young man, this son, came back and he truly became one of, the, one of the servants, he truly became one of the hired hands, every day of his life from then on, he would be reminded and having that position and that job would forever remind him that he really blew it, that he hurt his father and he's gonna be punished for it the rest of his life. That, my friends, is called shame and shame is not from God. Guilt, yes, the Holy Spirit will speak to our conscience and say, you did something wrong. Guilt says I am now aware I did something wrong. Guilt is good if guilt leads you to confession. Shame is beating yourself up. Shame is self-loathing. Just make me like a hired hand. In some corners of the church, there's uh, what has been called worm theology. 
Worm theology is this, I'm nothing but a worm, I'm a vile sinner, I'm awful, and therefore, you know, I'm gonna grovel before God, and if I, if I um, look down on myself enough, and if I'm self-loathing enough, maybe God will show me mercy. That's not how God operates. He doesn't need you to be self-loathing. He doesn't need you beating, up and beating yourself up, calling yourself you know, a failure and a loser and everything else you can come up with. All God wants is the truth. Speak the truth. He's not into groveling. You know what he does? The moment you come back, he makes you a son or a daughter. He puts the ring on your finger. He puts the robe on your back. He gives you nice shoes for your feet. And he says, you are my son or my daughter. And he will never bring up nor remind you of the failure and the sin. God doesn't do that. And the father in the story doesn't either. Shame just keeps just rubbing it in our face. Some folks who've been wounded have had that person come back and try to make it right and they hold it over their heads the rest of their lives. Friends, that's, that's toxic. Just let it, let it go, let the person go. But see, when there's, when there's confession and then it's embraced and shame is eliminated, you have this beautiful thing that happens. It's like confession releases joy and relief. It releases freedom And the next thing you know, a party's breaking out. Jesus says, when one sinner repents, I tell you, there's more joy in heaven than if 99 righteous persons uh, stay in the fold. All heaven wants to hear is the truth. And um, and there's forgiveness that's granted. Wouldn't that be so good? When you you mess up, you confess it, and it's forgotten and and let go of. So, Repair is possible when there's initiating love, when there's confession, and when confession is embraced and shame is removed. And you have this beautiful picture of the younger son reconciled with his dad. Now, the third part of the story is kind of a reality check. Part of me wishes this part of the story wasn't there. And that is that rupture sometimes is uncertain. Sometimes it's repaired, and sometimes it's not. Thus we go to the older brother. Verse 25, meanwhile, back at the ranch, the older son was in the field. He's out there working. That's what he always did. He's working hard for dad. In verse 28, the older brother became angry because he comes to the house and he hears music, and there's dancing, and there's the, the aroma of wonderful grilled food, grilled, grilled meat in the background. And, and he said, what's going on? And he said, ah, oh, your younger brother came back. And your, your dad's so excited, he's throwing a big party. And here's his response. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Now, just like it was a disgrace to the family that the younger son got his inheritance early and left, It's a disgrace to the family that the older son will not come into the party. Instead, all of the guests, they see it. You ever been in in the middle of somebody else's family fight and it gets kind of awkward? That's kind of what's going on here. People are guests are saying, well, you know, there's this murmur. Why isn't he coming in the party? What's going on? What's his problem? He's got a great dad. What's going on here? Something's going on. And he's standing outside with his arms crossed. 
He's mad. It's a disgrace to the father. The older brother is just like the religious leaders of his day. In fact, you can make the argument that this story is more about the older brother than it is the wild one who goes off and does crazy things and gets welcomed back. We always focus on that, and it is beautiful. But really, this story was aimed at the older brothers in the crowd. Uh, Luke chapter 15, verses one and two says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. How terrible. And, and so this story is told to them and about them and really against them because religion tends to get filled with older brothers. You know, self-righteous, smug, dutiful, rule keepers, responsible, good citizens, respectable. They do what's right. And by golly, they don't tolerate that foolishness from the younger brothers. He's angry. So, so the other older brother became angry. Verse 29, but he answered his father. So the father goes out to him. He answered his father, look, literally it's look you, instead of dad, our father, look you. Picture him wagging his finger. All these years I've been slaving for you. Slaving for you? I thought he worked with his dad. You know, sometimes the dutiful, the respectable, the responsible inwardly resent all of that. I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never disobeyed? Well, outwardly. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, this son of yours, you know, sometimes when my boys would do something that, that I didn't approve of, I'd talk to Linda, I'd say, your son over here, or Linda would say to me, your son right? <laughs> I'm not claiming him right now. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, whoa, 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 prostitutes, that wasn't mentioned in the story. It says he squandered his, his wealth and wild living. Maybe the prostitutes is what the older brother kind of fantasized about. Maybe that says more about him than it does his younger brother. Squatter your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. There, there are two characters in the story that are not happy, the older brother and the fattened calf. <laughs> yeah, he's not happy at all. The older brother, man, he's not happy. He's angry. And the father, I love the father. Here's his response. My son, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours, literally. Remember when he divided his property? He gave one-third to the younger and gave the rest to the older. Everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and to be glad because you're, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Any parent here can picture losing a son our daughter, and they come back, how elated and joyful you would be. And he is, and he loves the older brother. And that's how the story ends. Jesus leaves us with a cliffhanger. 
He doesn't resolve it. What happens between the older brother and the dad? The ending, we're not told the ending. Does the older brother say, oh man, you're right, dad. And his heart gets soft and his heart softens towards his younger brother and dad and he comes in? Does that happen? Or does he walk away in a huff, angry that his father would do this for this rebellious, no good brother of his? We're not told. I can tell you, with the religious leaders, they never reconciled themselves with Jesus. In fact, they plotted his death. The reality is, sometimes rupture's uncertain. You know, I would have liked this story to be resolved. Something in me would like it all kind of wrapped up in a nice little package, a bow on the top, and done, you know? My wife watches Hallmark movies. Pray for me, please. It's a core source of constant tension. Anyway, so she, she likes that every story ends with a kiss. Like when they kiss, the story's over. So the other night, walking in, they're kissing. And I said, I guess the story's over. She says, would you stop it, you know? <laughs> but she says, I like these happy endings. Just leave me alone. There's no kiss here. It's not a Hallmark movie. The older brother and the father, how does it all work out? I don't know. I bet that exactly describes some relationships in your world. It does mine. I, I would bet there are relationships, maybe with sons and daughters, parents, friends, coworkers, that are sort of like unresolved. There's been words, there's been heat, there's been anger, and it's just kind of out there. What do you do? Well, we can always forgive, and forgiveness is within our grasp. This isn't a story of forgiveness, though. This is a story of reconciliation. They're two different things. Um, Lewis Smedes, I mentioned him a couple weeks ago in a, um, in a message, best book on forgiveness I've ever read, read it 30 years ago, it revolutionized how I see forgiveness. Sometimes we, we want to include reconciliation in forgiveness. It's not, it's a different thing. Forgiveness is three things. First, it's seeing the person who has wounded you as a human being again. In other words, they're no longer a jerk or a monster. They're a human being. Secondly, uh, uh, surrendering your right to get even. And then thirdly, Forgiveness is beginning to see that person in a positive light and praying that they are blessed instead of cursed. That's forgiveness. Reconciliation, repair, that's a different matter altogether. We are commanded to forgive. But reconciliation takes two. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, Paul could have said, hey, guys, would you just live at peace with everybody? But I love how he gives two caveats. If it's possible, because sometimes it's not, as much as it depends on you, because it takes two, live at peace with everyone. Sometimes the repair doesn't happen. It's 
It's sad, but it's life. You know, my prayer going into this was, Lord, it was really, Holy Spirit, come and speak to people's hearts and let them apply this where it needs to be applied. And the Holy Spirit's good about that. I suspect that as I've spoken today, some of you have faces in your mind. People. I want to ask you a couple questions. First, where do you need to confess your wrongdoing? Where you go to the person and say, I was wrong. What I said was hurtful and wrong. What I did was a sin. End. Stop. No excuses. Where do you need to give forgiveness to the person who's confessed? And thirdly, where do you, is there somebody you need to release from shame because they hurt you and you've never let them forget it? You've rubbed it in their face and you've held it over their head and friends, shame is toxic. Where do you need to let go of the shame? I pray the Holy Spirit speaks to you. This is serious stuff. But I do know this. I won't be like that, Father. Let's pray. So, Father, we want to be like you. We want to be like you. Give us grace. First, to name the sin, to confess the wrongdoing where it needs to be confessed. And then, if we're on the receiving end of that confession, to receive it graciously and to say no to shame, to truly let people be free. So Father, by your grace, if it's possible, as much as it depends on us, may we live at peace with everyone. Come and heal broken relationships, broken families, marriages, friendships, work relationships at school, wherever. And let us be a source of healing and grace and goodness. For we pray in the name of our perfect Father. Amen. If you enjoyed today's message, make sure to subscribe to this channel. Feel free to share this with others that God has put on your heart. To learn more about LaCroix Church or to find your next steps, head to lacroixchurch.org. Thanks again for checking us out, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you.